0: how hard can it be up close and personal with the real people behind the hits and misses in Boston's venture capital big time? My name is Mike Triano, and I'm the chief marketing officer of Actifio and a limited partner in Boston's own G20 Ventures. You can follow me on Twitter at MikeTrap and check out my Medium blog at MikeTrap.com. Each week, we'll be getting to know one of the luminaries in our local startup community and drill into a specific area of their expertise for the benefit of other entrepreneurs and investors. My guest this week is Drift co-founder and CEO David Cancel. If you've ever landed on a web page and had a real person offer to help you find what you were looking for, there's a decent chance Drift helped make it happen. Their mission is to help businesses grow by delivering a better personal experience across every conversation with their customers. And it's a space David knows all too well. He spent his career building great products for marketers at companies he's founded, including Compete, Lookery, Ghostery, and Performable. He served as chief product officer at HubSpot after it acquired Performable in 2011 and is widely credited as having re-architected both the product and the engineering team at that company prior to its wildly successful IPO in 2014. Now, David's active in the Boston tech community, investing in and advising organizations like Charles River Ventures, Spark Capital, NextView, Dorm Room Fund, Evertrue, Visible Measures, Yoda, and, and Help Scout. You can and absolutely should catch his podcast, Seeking Wisdom, which offers practical advice on health, wealth, life, and learning for fellow entrepreneurs. As you'll hear in our conversation, David was born and raised in New York City and now lives in the Boston area with his wife and two kids. And this week's second segment, he and I talked about the process of developing products that win, which is so different from the creation mythology most startups are framed in after the fact. If you had to develop a person from scratch to drive that process, you'd be hard-pressed to design a better fit than David. And we'll dig into the relationship I've always found fascinating between the person and the products they create. I've known David for a long time, and he's not only one of the best product guys in Boston, but one of the most broadly read and genuinely thoughtful people in our community. I think you're really going to enjoy our conversation, what drifts into the working class backgrounds that have shaped us both, the importance of family, and the unvarnished truth about what it takes to create something the world wants badly enough to pay for it. While you're listening here, please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Overcast, or Pocket Cast, and consider giving us a quick five-star review on iTunes. It really helps spread the word about what we're doing, and I would both sincerely and personally appreciate the love. Okay, How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures. Early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs, G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service, available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Here now, my conversation with David Cancel. All right, with me today is David Cancel. How are you, David? I'm doing well, Mike. Thanks for having me. I am. um, So we recorded one of these at my place, and I lost the goddamn thing. (laughs) And there's been such empathy. Like, I guess this happens to every podcaster at least once. It's kind of a, a rite of passage. Um, so now we're at uh, Drift's glorious world headquarters, and mm-hmm. you guys have this sweet rig here. Yeah. This, this is like—I feel like I'm like Kitty Training Wheels podcast.
1: <laughs> we're professional here. We got Holy a little board. Shit, and you stuff. got
0: the mixing board. Uh, I want to—I want to record some tunes.
1: Oh yeah, big time. I'm
0: trying to be a big emo star. Coming, ne- coming next out. Next of
1: office, we're going to upgrade even more.
0: Uh, okay. You need that. You need those little like waffle things on yeah, the walls. Yeah, oh, we, that's what you need.
1: We're moving to Back Bay uh, in April, and we have, already have a room that's, uh, that's set. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, listen, I appreciate you doing this again. Um, I, I so enjoyed our conversation, and I really want to share with people. Uh, your background to me is particularly interesting. You've always been a fascinating character, uh, but uh, I, want to, I want to tell your story, and I want to tell the story of how you got here because in so many ways, Drift is sort of the culmination of a journey you've been on from the beginning.
1: You know, I was born in the Bronx, New York, and uh, grew up in Queens, and not your typical uh, story for technology founder. And both my parents emigrated here from the United, uh, to the United States from Ecuador and from Puerto Rico, my mom and my dad, and, uh, and you know, were, you know, uh, lower middle class, you know, at best and, you know, hustled and grinded and worked, you know, seven days a week and kind of uh, to bring up my brother and myself.
0: So you know for folks um i I lived in New York for ten years, as you mm-hmm. know, and so i I know the boroughs mm-hmm. for folks who don't you know that that shift from Bronx to queens is is huge huge um how How old were you when your family made made this made this shift?
1: Uh, I was five years old, so I was five, and uh I still didn't uh, still was in the midst of teaching myself English. I learned English uh, watching Gilgan's Island and Brady Bunch and a bunch of TV shows, right? <laughs> Inspector Gadget. You knew how to do
0: a spit take by the time yeah, you, yeah. Were, you were six. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have memories of the Bronx? Uh,
1: I do. I do because we lived. Um, as you, uh, basically where the six line runs over. And, uh, and so, you know, you see those old movies of the Bronx in in the seventies and there were trains. I remember the trains running over. I remember graffiti. Like welcome back Cotter. Yeah, totally. Uh, it was totally welcome back yeah, Cotter. Yeah. My life actually, that's funny that you say welcome back Cotter. Most people won't ha- know that reference, but there was, uh, there was a character in there. That some people referred to me as, which is uh, at one point was Juan, Juan Epstein. Epstein. Yeah.
0: Before you shaved your head.
1: <laughs> because uh, Juan Epstein, uh, love- who was a, uh, half Puerto Rican, half Jewish, because obviously I'm Puerto Rican. But where we moved to in Queens was my area was predominantly Jewish neighborhood. So right. I was Juan Epstein. There you go. <laughs> All right. So, um, so what was it like growing up uh, in Queens? Uh, you know, a whole different time. It's hard to describe now. It's like an innocent time, uh, even though it was Queens and, you know, kind of the city, uh, because, you know, we didn't have access to the internet. We didn't have access to information. And so like, we were all a lot more naive right back then. And so, uh, you know, I grew up in Queens. I went to a Catholic school, you know, 12 years of Catholic school. So like, uh, grammar school. And then I went to an all-boys school, uh, that was mostly, uh, uh, you know, sports school And now I know like There's only like two Two sets of Two types of kids That go to an all-boys school Like half were like troublemakers Right? Like <laughs> keep them out of prison Right? right? Uh, so the brothers would discipline them and, uh, and then the other half Were kind of generic I was in the other half General And uh, But it was interesting It was a great time to grow up uh, Especially that all-boys school Because there was no di- uh, There was no Social Kind of Pressures Because there were no women Right. right, and so right. there was no one to show off for, and so like that meant that everyone got along, and uh, and there were no clicks. It's, it's
0: liberating in a way.
1: It was liberating. Yeah, it was easy.
0: So, like me, and like many of the entrepreneurs I've spoken to, ironically, you were the first in your family to go to college. Yes, and uh, talk a little bit about that yep. experience and where mm-hmm. you went and why.
1: Yep. So I went to again back to a smaller time, especially for myself. I didn't. None. Of, no one in my family had gone to college, had graduated from college. I didn't graduate from college. I dropped out of college in my. Senior year, I went to a school called Queens College, which is a CUNY school. Who most people would never know of. Uh, the only famous people who went there are comedians, uh, Jerry Seinfeld and Ray Romano. So if you know those two people, then you know you know all about Queens College. And you um, know, I went there because frankly, I didn't I didn't even understand how you. I didn't have a role model to even understand like how do you apply to other schools? How do you find? How do you actually pay for school? How do you just go through that whole process. And actually, when my brother, who's five years younger than me, was going through the process, I was that role model for him. So I helped him apply to lots of schools and take a different path. Uh, But for me, I didn't have anyone to lean on. And so I just went to this school because it was the closest. I studied um, accounting and computer science and why those, you know, I liked computer science because I had been playing with the vic Twenty. Ever since I was a kid, I was, you know, addicted to video games and Atari and all those kind of things and ColecoVision and, you know, all of that and trying to program games. Uh, But, you know, my mom, uh, all she wanted me to do was become an accountant and my my mom had no idea what an accountant did. She just knew that was a person who took the train to Manhattan and they wore a suit and they had a briefcase and they had a steady job and that seemed like the dream. Right.
0: A, a yeah. white guy's job.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Um, well, I never became an accountant, obviously. Yeah,
0: or a white guy. Yeah, a white guy. Uh, um, your parents, you know, must have been incredibly proud though. And, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I know you did well from an academic standpoint. Mm-hmm. The decision to leave how to be hard, you know, tell us about both the choice and about telling your parents, you know, hey, mom and dad, (laughs) you know, I want to go work.
1: Yeah. Oh, man. Difficult conversation. Series of difficult conversations, right? My mom only wanted me to become an accountant. I eventually became an entrepreneur. My mom's passed away now. And so even throughout all of those difficult conversations, even after after I had multiple companies that that had been acquired and uh, things were great, right? Um, my mom still didn't understand because she had no reference for what an uh, entrepreneur was, right? So it was some weird thing. Uh, I, I'm sure she still wished that I had become an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, like on the back to the school question, uh, I'd say, you know, I was incredibly bored in college. Like super bored, like painfully bored. And now I can look at my personality and understand what type of person I am. I'm a momentum maker and I like... And I need to be around people who are passionate about what they 're doing and uh, and when i 'm in that environment, then i will i i'm addicted to learning like twenty four seven I want to grow and I want to learn almost from like old school from like a master or a craftsman and I felt like when I was in college like none of the professors I thought were interesting i didn't, i didn 't think that what they were teaching me, especially in the computer science side, was deep or you know came from like a, it seemed like they were and I'm sure they were great teachers, but like it seemed like they were teaching something because someone said that they should teach that thing versus coming from a place of passion. And so I was bored, and I was uh, working full-time while going to college, many different types of jobs, and one of them was kind of instrumental in me becoming an entrepreneur, and that was, uh, funny enough, working in a warehouse that was run by a Taiwanese entrepreneur who was actually very successful. It was probably the first... Actual millionaire that I've known, although nobody knew that he was a millionaire, right? He was very Sam Walton. He taught me the ways of Sam Walton, right? He rode, he he drove like an old car. No one knew exactly where he lived. He was very modest. He works like seven days a week, unlike someone, anyone that I had ever seen work so hard, and was very modest, but I happened to know I was connected to his family, so I happened to know the truth. So like I learned a lot from him. He took me under his wing. He actually was the the reason that I stayed in college as long as I did because he he was uh, he had his master's degree he had studied computer science and he was trying to push me in that area, uh, but I learned a lot on the job from him and I learned a lot on my own and this is around the time that our library in my senior year our library had gotten a copy of Mosaic and uh, and then later Netscape and which meant that I then. Stopped going to all classes and spent all my time on the early internet, if you remember those days.
0: You know, there's that, that break, uh, the dichotomy between people who are, you know, moved to life choices mm-hmm. by obligation yep. versus by passion, right? Yep. Those are kind of the two sides of the coin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and for people who are, who are, once you've had a taste of what it's like to do something out of sheer passion for Mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. it's very hard to go back into a place where you're there as a teacher or as a student merely from a place of obligation.
1: Totally. I can't, you know, so like, you know, what happened to me was, uh, I am, I have an obsessive personality, right? Uh, which could be, you know, bordering on addictive personality, yeah. right? So that can be positive or negative. You got to right? channel it. I got to channel you gotta, you gotta it. You got right? to point that shit so, at something constructive. Exactly, exactly. Man. So if you're a parent and you have boys, <laughs> especially, you know, you got to channel certain energy. And for me, I channeled it in a positive way. I wanted to learn about basically the beginnings of the early internet and everything that it took to do that, what that meant. Uh, basically when I was in college and right after college was like when all my friends in New York were partying and going to clubs and hanging out all night, you know, they all said to me like, what happened to you, Dave? You changed. Because I was spending seven days a week, 24 hours a day, learning, reading, taking apart machines, understanding how machines work, reading every manual from, I was buying a lot of esoteric Hardware like old Sun Machines, old uh, Iris Machines from SGI and from DEC here in Boston and trying to figure out how those machines worked, And that's what I did seven days a week uh, out of pure passion.
0: What did you take away from that experience? You know, we're going to come back to mm-hmm. your technical journey and your role yep. as, as what I think is you know, one of the best product guys in Boston, certainly. But like from a business standpoint, as you reflect back mm-hmm. on business is kind of a black box to totally. a kid growing up in the burbs. Yeah. Um, what did you What did you learn from the experience of working in that warehouse about the nature of business that that you've taken forward into your various ventures over the years
1: even when I was a teenager and I was fifteen sixteen, wherever I worked, whether that was like in a grocery store or a warehouse or whatever random job I had, I had this tendency where I was always, always end up to be the manager. I never understood why they were always picking me i didn't want to be the manager uh but for some reason they were people were picking me to be this to take this role Sam kind of Uh, taught me what it was like to actually be a manager, to have some responsibility for people. Uh, I actually, we were um, cash and carry warehouse, you know, for kind of bodegas and and that kind of thing. And so, like, I took over the responsibility for ordering probably half of, you know, the merchandise that would come in on a weekly basis. So, like, all of the vendors and dealers, whether they were, toy companies or HBA companies, you know, health and beauty aid companies would come to me and I would actually place all the orders and be responsible for all that, which was a lot of responsibility for, you know, a 19 year old person who had no experience there. So he gave me, he kind of taught me this, the importance of mentorship. Then he taught me the importance of like actually putting someone in that situation and having them figure it out and kind of learn and then being there to kind of guide them uh, you know having these guardrails there's like countless lessons that i've learned from him and then the importance of working hard and staying humble he was probably the most humble person that i've worked with really he is later probably a couple years later i read the autobiography of sam walton and he the two just remind me so much of each other right uh and so like that is the second to the first sam, the second sam, sam walton, reading that book, i probably read that five times now. that's probably the book that's had the most impact on me and mm-hmm. my management style.
0: did you have exposure to like, you know, things like cash flow and yep. like, you know, w- you know, stretching your vendors and like <laughs> yeah. all that aspect all of it? Uh, yeah. yeah, i
1: didn't know anything about like, you know, net 60 net 30, yeah. you know, uh
0: or that that shit matters. Or that that mattered, uh, you yeah, know, yeah.
1: or re- you know, how we handle returns, how we get credits. i didn't know anything about um how he actually processed any of these things. And one thing that Sam was super lead, this first Sam was super leading edge on was that he was building his own inventory management system. He was coding it himself at nights, right, uh, in the office. And then that quickly became my job. So then that taught me, like, the the real application versus the academic application of building something, the importance that that had on a business. And so another, you know, amazing role that he put me in, um, you know, kind of pushed me into, right? And then I learned that importance, which is like right. sometimes you see something in someone that you work with or someone that joins your team, and sometimes you got to push them nicely into an uncomfortable right. situation.
0: It's funny, that, mm-hmm. that was your MBA, that experience. Yeah, it's it in so
1: many ways. Massive. Um,
0: all right, so, so you get to a point, you know, there's some subset of people would be perfectly happy in that role, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You got a good job, maybe yeah. you're over time, you're <laughs> becoming a, you know, you're a manager, yeah, you're, yeah. you know, whatever, um, making a little money. Yeah. Um, what, uh, what, what, what uh, triggered your departure from that?
1: that yeah. two things. I'd say, um, one, I was becoming more and more obsessed with, again, the early commercial internet and this is not following is, your passion. Yeah, yeah. following yeah. passion. And so I'm spending more and more time doing that. And even though I'm coding during the day, uh, I'm not coding anything that's internet enabled, right? I'm doing on, what we call on-prem on-premise software right. today, the back office uh, stuff, back office yeah. software. So I'm passionate about that. And then two, again, the the true sign of a great mentor, Sam pushed me that I needed to go find the next thing, right? Even right. though now I can look back at and so you all of us, we all have these kind of pivotal points in our life. I can look back at it and say like, well, in Sam's Best interest in every way that I can calculate. His best interest was just to keep me there and not to push me and not and just keep me as a manager. And it was easier for him, but he chose to try to push me and help me to go on to the next level. Incredible. Mm-hmm.
0: What was that next opportunity?
1: Uh, I joined a uh, three people who were starting three founders who were looking to start a company. They were based in internet. This was actually. On the internet, right? Amazing. This was uh, 1996. This was in. Uh, they were based in Soho, New York. We were on Broadway in Spring. They were. They had an idea for basically building what they called community properties on the web. Again, really brand heavy in New York. You know, they wanted to build community media properties on the web, which today would be called social networks, right, or affinity networks, or whatever you want to call it. And uh, but none of them could code, right? And so they were looking for someone to code, and I joined them. That company, which was called Concrete Media, uh, we ended up paying the bills by creating uh, properties for other brands, Bertelsmann and Ford, and all of these kind of brands. That Princeton Review was a big customer of ours. We were basically building the first websites and first apps for those companies to become internet enabled, and uh, and we thought, okay, we're going to pay the bills with that but we're going to incubate our our own ideas, right? This is all like, now I look back, I'm like, this is pretty leading edge. Yeah. And uh, incubate lean. our own ideas. Lean. Lean, yeah. Lean before lean. <laughs> uh, pre-lean. <laughs> uh, we're going to incubate our own ideas, which are going to be focused around communi- creating communities around certain demographics. Our first one was we acquired a project from a girl uh, who was at NYU in grad school, and uh, she had a basically what today would be called a blog right and it was called girls on film and it was her and three friends who reviewed movies so basically the demographic was 20 to 30 year old uh young single female today you know like this was before uh the show girls or the all of these shows that we know or sex in the city right like all of these but like it was aimed at that same demographic and uh we bought it she became my girlfriend unrelated and has been my wife now for 17 years right totally unrelated but uh we bought that from her and then built it into a network called the girls on network girls on film books tv etc that was uh bought a couple of years later by oxygen media and so they went over there they did a tv show they did a whole bunch of different things anyway and uh wrote a book etc and then we built another thing which was aimed at 13 to 18 year olds and it was a uh, Teen focused social network, and it was really like what we would see in Facebook today, was um, back then. And it was called Bolt.com. We got that up to be the second biggest af- after iVillage, second biggest community property on the web, as uh, you know, according to Media Metrics and Jupiter and all those kind of companies back then who measured this kind of thing. And we were these were all dial up users, we had millions of teens who would be on our website at any given moment. And remember, this was back in the day when they were dialing in with best case 56K modems. And our average session length, so how long they would stay on for a session, was over 60 minutes. Right? incredible on dial-up
0: yeah for you know for people who didn't go through this you know the, the, the internet first came into my you know s- circle of awareness mm-hmm. as primarily around news groups which yes. was a way to connect and mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and then you had these sort of walled gardens you know yep. you had you had prodigy and aol well, CompuServe, mm-hmm. and that created a more the ability to create micro communities yep. that were a little bit more visual mm-hmm. and then you know you have ninety four is like you know you you have the you know Netscape yep. uh, IPO happens and then the the Yahoo comes on board at Stanford and yep. now there's a directory and mm-hmm. and so th- there was this sort of the engine of the early internet mm-hmm. and the early web was really about community it was about uh, absolutely connecting to other people like you yes uh, whether you were you know a female film buff or mm-hmm. whatever because up to then you know, you were only able to connect to the people like you in your close proximity. Totally. And this was the thing Um, that was
1: changing, right? And even when we were building everything on, like we look at, um, this has led me now to like, you know, be the old man on the hill with everyone in product and say like, like none of these patterns are new, right? They're all age old patterns because they're all based on human patterns, right? Right. They connect to some human need. But if we look at what we were doing in 1996 with Bolt, we were spending all our time decomposing Prodigy and AOL, especially AOL, because they were more heavy for our demographic. Right? Prodigy was a little bit more technical, and we were looking at and recreating what they had created in desktop software on the web: forums, message bo- uh, forums, and message boards, uh, which had moderators, etc. And they, our own instant messaging client, our own email. We did all that stuff in 1996 when you couldn't. It was exciting because we were there was nowhere that you could read how you actually code any of this. How do you right. build any of this? How do you actually build a web server? Like all the stuff that, you know, is off the shelf today that we have stacks for and you can Google something. There was no Google. There was nothing. And so it was the wild West and we were creating everything. You know, I was creating, I was building our web server. I was writing the code. I was, uh, deploying us in Exodus, which was a big colo center back then in New Jersey. Uh, I was actually ordering the machines. I was racking the machines. I was cabling the machines. I was doing everything that, uh, and I loved it, right? That was like, it it was uh, intoxicating.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Those days were, um, if you were self-motivated, if you were someone who was just willing to sit down and figure shit out, you Mm -hmm. could do anything, right? Totally. Um, And so it was a sort of time of great empowerment. Mm -hmm. and. Um, and of course, you know, looking back on it, people think about the bubble yep. at, from the perspective of post bubble. Mm-hmm. They look back on the bubble as like some like a bunch of idiots, who, yep. you know, uh, <laughs> rationally exuberant. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. But but at the time, man, it was like it was so cool. It was so exciting. It was so yeah. uh, it was something fundamentally new. The rules weren't written, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, the only the only analogy is like for me that gives you a glimmer of it as i see it again in podcasting yep. in this sort of micro fragmentation mm-hmm. like last night was the uh, i'm into to a show on sci-fi called the expanse and okay. there was a great episode last night and i you know got up today and i wanted to talk to somebody mm-hmm. and i went and i found a podcast and it's like this great conversation and oh, that's awesome. and it's the only thing i can think of that that is that is um, but it's still the same shit it's still yeah. i want to connect to somebody Definitely. else who feels what i feel
1: and yeah. but uh, but that thing that experience that you had last night is only the realization of all the excitement that we had back in 1994, 95, 96,
0: right? Seeing it for the first time. Seeing it
1: for the first time, and we thought eventually the internet was going to let us do exactly what happened to you last night. Yeah. We thought maybe the exuberant was like that. We thought it would happen faster. It actually took longer than we thought, Uh, especially, you know, adoption of cable modems, et cetera, et cetera. Like, uh, but it took longer, but it's all happening. It came to pass. Yeah. Yeah, It came to pass. Absolutely, And you know, I don't know how many paradigm shifts like that we will live through in our life. It's true. Mm -hmm. So,
0: you know, you're, you're, Really, your first time out of the gate, you know, the thing mutated in seven different ways as yeah. startups always do. It's a messy line, yeah. Always a messy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you you have this great success first mm-hmm. time out of the gate. Yeah. Um, and so after that, were you like, oh well, shit, this is easy. I'm going to go do this again, or or how how does um how do you get from from that yeah. um to, series of steps to yeah. to the first your your next opportunity?
1: Yeah, I've only been aligned really about around. Two things, right? Uh, throughout my career, one is like uh, this addiction to learning, and so I was really thinking about like what is it? What don't I know? Like because you still have, and this is why I still probably somewhat argue, I still have a chip on my shoulder, right? I still have something to prove, right? Like I'm self-taught in everything, and so I, I felt like I had a good, some good experiences. Uh, some stuff was cool, but like I didn't. I felt like I didn't know. That much, right? You have the imposter syndrome. And so like, you feel like, oh, I don't actually know anything. And so like, uh, so then you move on to the next opportunity to try to learn that. And, you know, I had joined the three three founders of this company. I wasn't a founder. I was the founding team and founding, you know, technologists and all that kind of stuff. But I I had not started the company. I had not started from zero. So I wanted to go do that at some point. And, um, and so learning was the number one thing. And then the other is back to, back to drift and this kind of manifestation is like this connection. And I think you said it perfectly with community and having this interaction. That was the, 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 that was why I became addicted to let's say, the Internet and, the, and and building software on the Internet because I had been building software at the warehouse or for customers or for whoever and I, or for school. And, I you know, it was cool, but it, it wasn't like this empowerment thing. It was like, oh, cool, I made a software yeah. thing. Maybe Michael used it, maybe not. I don't really know. But I had this this epiphany moment where uh, I, created a, I had created a series of websites before I, I joined that company, and one of them, my first one, while I was still in school, Uh, I had a, you know, back in the day you would put, you know, your email at the footer of every page that you created because there was no such thing as spam, right? (laughs) And almost no one had uh, email and no one could find your website anyway. But I got an email from a guy in Russia and that guy in Russia said, all he said was, hey man, your website's cool, right? And I was, that moment was it was like a million light bulbs went off because I never had the feedback loop.
0: Yeah. No, it's the difference between masturbation and sex. Yes. You know? <laughs> um, <you> Absolutely. Know. <laughs> it,
1: was, it was that. It was that kind uh, of moment. It, is. it, it is. was it is. my first time. Yeah. It was like, <laughs> boom. I was like, and I became addicted to that. I was like, I could actually make something and then get a response from someone. Yeah. And they said like, oh, I like that. And I was like, as an engineer, as an introverted engineer, like that was incredible. Huge. Yeah, Huge.
0: So what, what was that next opportunity you were setting off on your own to be, uh, you know, employee zero?
1: My girlfriend, who I mentioned before, uh, who had sold her, her project had been acquired by Oxygen, was ready to, wanted to move back to Boston where she had grown up or her family's in this area. And she asked me at one point, hey, do you, I'm going to, I want to move back to Boston. Do you want to come? That was the only conversation and I said, sure. And, you know, why? Another
0: hard conversation with Mom and dad yeah yeah
1: yeah um, <laughs> another hard conversation yeah, yeah. why uh, you know hard to pinpoint i th- obviously um, obviously, I like this girl, uh, but two i 'd say like I felt like I had never lived outside of New York, right I grew up in Queens largely, and now i had I was living in Manhattan by this point, and uh, but I had never lived outside of New York, and I felt like there 's a certain thing in New York where if you, most people are lifers, most people never want to leave New York and everything is accessible to you. And I wanted to have lived somewhere else. And I thought I moved to Boston. I've never been to Boston before. I've been to New England, but not Boston. And, uh, and worst case, maybe I'll move back in, in six months. So I came up here and I met a whole bunch of early companies at the time. And I met the CTO of Lycos, which was if you don't remember, um, you know, a search en- uh, a, a large search engine at the time, you know, there was Yahoo, there, were Ly- there was Lycos, and there was a couple other competitors in the market. AltaVista. AltaVista. There, there was the
0: sense that that, that, that that market was sort of over. Oh, totally. Lycos was
1: dominating, and totally. like
0: AltaVista came up, and it was marginally better, but search was kind of done.
1: Done. And we were spending, uh, uh, Lycos was spending, and everyone else, and Excite, and everyone else in that market was, trying to ask find Jeeves yeah, Ask Jeeves. we <laughs> were all trying to find um, how to how to diversify out of search because search was considered done and so Lycos at that point was acquiring lots of companies uh, they were originally from based out of Pittsburgh because they were, came out of CMU but Bob Davis and and his team was uh, had an office here in Waltham which they were growing they were acquiring a lot of companies they had acquired a company who brought in the CTO of Lycos and so he talked me into coming to Lycos to build an entrepreneurial group, basically to build, it was a labs group, to build new products within Lycos. Dream job. Yeah, it was a dream. I got to play. Yeah. Yeah. So I came up, did that, um, met a whole bunch of amazing people. I uh, wasn't there long. We tried to ship three products that we had built within Lycos, learned a whole bunch of lessons, which I had never been exposed to, about kind of like politics and, uh, you know, bureaucracy and all of this kind of stuff. Lots of good things as well, but it was just an interesting time as they were going through growing pains. And so I left there and became CTO of a company called BuyerZone, which got acquired by a company called Reed Elsevier, uh, and met, again, a bunch of great investors, a bunch of great colleagues who I still in contact with, and uh, did that, brought that to market, and then was itching to start my own company. And then that was Compete, which we started in November of 2000.
0: You know, people who are not um, in startup people or but aspire to be entrepreneurs of some Mm -hmm. kind of or another, you know, they'll sometimes come to me like people with real jobs and they'll say, (laughs) hey, Mike, I got this opportunity to go work for this company. It's venture funded and blah, blah, blah. And one of the things that I say to them always is, is, you know, are you willing to do three? Mm -hmm. Meaning like, you know, are you willing to take three swings to get to something Ooh, like that, that works? Um, and and so it, make it less about this, this individual opportunity because yeah. it's never really that. No. It's it's always sort of you're, there's the idea of like you know you're going to make three attempts with the expectation that one will hit, and it just strikes me that that in, that I see that pattern in your career <laughs> that that you're yeah. willing to like you yeah. know take a few swings at it, yep. and then finally you sort of hit pay dirt, and you're like ah okay, so it's got to be this this and this and. Yep you know, that's your, you know, you got to be willing to fail a little bit or make bad choices or, or fuck up.
1: Totally, totally. <laughs> you know? And I fucked up many a um, time, but uh, I love that. I'm going to steal that idea of three swings. I think for me, I just wanted to have, again, back to learning, I just wanted to have at-bats. I felt like I needed at-bats. I wanted experience. Yeah. I wanted to like uh, swing and strike out or, you know, get on base or whatever, because I, I had never seen that other side. And again, you know, in these days, even when we started to compete, there were still uh, no VC bloggers. There was no yeah. one writing about, like, you know, uh, funding a Series A company or, like, seeding a company or what happens or how to build a management team. There was no guide. It's so.
0: ironic when you think about it that yeah. of all the micro communities that were created, yeah. that one wasn't. Yeah. Because you're right. There really was no place. There was Fast Company, but it was a like print magazine, right, mm-hmm. where you had the sense of a new style of management and innovation. Yep. and. But but it, it is interesting that that didn't happen until later.
1: No, that didn't happen until uh, Fred Wilson and, and Brad That's Fell right. did uh, started to blog in about 2006 2007. Uh-huh.
0: You know, it's often tempting to play dime store psychologist in these interviews. But by this point in our conversation, I have to say I really felt like I understood and related to where David Cancel was coming from. As a five-year-old Bronx kid with a vague sense of needing to be worthy of a middle-class life in Queens, then as a college dropout elevated to management in a cash-and-carry warehouse, and finally as an entrepreneur entrusted with investors' money and employees' belief, David Cancel had developed three qualities that would not only propel him forward, but which I think beautifully frame up the product journey at every successful startup I've ever seen. The first is a love of learning, a passion to improve. The second is the active pursuit of feedback from the people you're trying to serve. And the third was a willingness to fail fast and iterate until you find a formula that works. So Compete is where you come onto the radar screen Mm -hmm. of of the startup community in Boston. Mm -hmm. And what was the founding insight of Compete? What did you set out to build out of the gate?
1: Yeah, so it was based, like, everything's derivative. At Bolt, even though Bolt was a social network, the business model for Bolt, again, because we didn't have ad revenue as even a thing to consider, was that we were, again, in New York, we were around a lot of brands. Most of the people that we worked with were former agency people on our team. And so the idea was like, wow, what about if we had all of these uh, teen kind of behavior because they were spending all of their time on our social network? Maybe we can do this thing which we call Bolt Labs, and have basically qualitative um, surveys and things like that to get opinions about teen buying preferences, and then we can work with major brands and agencies in New York to be able to use that data as a leading indicator of you know choice. That was an idea of like, wow, that was really interesting. We brought it to a little bit of success, but could we do something like that again, but at internet scale? Like just like the idea for compete was like. Can we amass the largest data set of Internet behavior data, which means like people visiting websites, um, and then be able to extrapolate out of that interesting information about you, your competitor, the market categories, and sell that to uh, anyone? Originally, we thought like anyone who had a website. That didn't work. So we took our data asset that we had, and we disguised it in the form of kind of strategy consulting. We hired a lot of ex-Bain, BCG, and McKinsey people to deliver that same exact data that we had available through a web-based tool before uh, to brand managers and CMOs in different vertical areas, automotive, um, you know, telco and telecom, finance, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we ended up working with all these amazing brands in all of those areas. We ended up working with Google ended up being our largest client many years later and Yahoo and all these kind of companies like
0: presidents and spouses and and a bunch (laughs) of different things like your next one is usually a reaction to what is what was wrong with your last one. Um, And (laughs) so you're you're learning kind of along the way and Mm -hmm. you're fixing you know there are some things that are baked into the DNA of a company that that no matter you can't pivot around them Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and you have to start something new and put it on a different trajectory to yep. sort of you know, mm-hmm. but you're you're still benefiting from the lessons learned yep. in the last three or four things that you did. You oh, know? totally, so true. Um, and
1: that you know, I did take Nike. Uh, my, my by the time I started a company called Performable because uh, Compete was acquired in 2007 by WPP, and uh, by the time I started Performable, which was in 09, like the whole beginning of Performable was a reaction to lessons learned and mistakes made at Compete. One of them was. Uh, Compete with a data business, and I felt like uh, I well I, I felt every time that we delivered work to a client, even though they were paying us in some cases you know millions of dollars per year on a subscription basis, they the, the reaction was always the same, which was this is awesome, amazing. I'm going to share this with the CEO or the division president but we can't actually implement any of the changes that you suggest because we would say hey mike we've seen your competitors doing xyz you're not doing it change this campaign and you're spending and you're sony and you're spending 100 million dollars in in brand Uh, and they'd say and it'd always be for the same reason because they didn't have development resources or because all the websites were controlled by the agencies and the agencies weren't coming back for six months and so i my reaction when we started performer was like I never want to do data business again unless we are able to tie data to action.
0: I had an exchange with um, with the guys at Clout yesterday over oh, yeah, Twitter. Sure. And and um, I you know I was going through a a list that I had created a while ago of a bunch of people and I and I, I I've never understood Clout's sort of model. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I tweeted that that boy it would be great if I could like sort and filter Twitter lists by Clout score.
1: Yeah make it
0: actionable in some mm-hmm, way. Like, mm-hmm. and I think that that's what you just described is I feel like a lesson that they have not yet learned.
1: Oh, most data businesses don't.
0: Um, which is that, that if you can't take action yeah. based on the insight, it's yeah. just
1: theory. It's just theory. Most um, data. And it's because of compete, because compete was early kind of in the data world, I get companies like that one and other ones that always want to talk about those experiences back then because they were all kind of early users of Compete. Uh, And, you know, one of the big lessons that I learned, which you just pointed out, was like, you know, like the importance of delivering customer value versus things that make us that we find interesting as the company or we find kind of seductive. And so, you know, one of the things that we learned pretty quickly was, you know, we had a group of statisticians, this is at Compete, and data scientists, and we were doing all this cool stuff, and we were building all these cool things, and, and all of a sudden, you know, we're building all of these sophisticated graphs and models and regressions and all this kind of stuff. And, but I was also part of a lot of the delivery, and I could tell pretty quickly from the customer standpoint that nobody knew what the hell we were talking about, right? right? And then, so I reduced that down finally to the team and said, like, unless it's a line Bar or pie chart, no one knows how to read it yeah. and we, it would be the smartest person you could you could ever meet on the other side of the fence, but as soon as you start busting out one of your radar graphs or bubble charts or you know candlesticks, no one knows how to read that and yeah. if you do a multi uh, multi dimensional kind of chart with multiple uh, Plot lines, like no one knows how to read that. That's not the average person cannot read that. And this, even if they're the CMO of Pepsi, they don't actually know how to read that chart. And you need to reduce it. And you need to be good at what Mike is great at, storytelling. I learned the importance when we were doing delivery work of you got to be great at storytelling. Like people want a story and they want, you know, like maybe one interesting takeaway that they can take action on. Right. And we were data overloading them with radar plots, this, that, blah, blah. And no one knew how to make sense of it.
0: Yeah. You don't get the business value, you don't get the benefit no. until you can process whatever it is into mm-hmm. something actionable and then, and then take that action.
1: Yeah, and the other thing we were obsessed about, not to go on about it for so long, but like, as technologists, and this is, again, really early, this is like pre-all of the data processing stuff that great companies like NetEase and other ones did, we had to build all this stuff ourselves at, at Compete, was like we were like, oh, we were obsessed about real-time data and giving access to the CMO in real time, like behavior and data. And they were just like, what? Yeah. Like I, I make decisions on a quarterly basis at, at <laughs> most. Right. And like, uh, like, what do you mean real time? And we were just like, so obsessed. We're like, no, but it's real time. You can see what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And yeah. it's like, again, another fail, disconnect from the customer. Yeah.
0: So you solve a lot of these problems, in uh, by the time you get to performable, which was a couple of iterations along the way, yep. at that point you're approached by uh, the folks uh, over at HubSpot, who by mm-hmm. then had you know incredible momentum yep. and uh, very obviously prominent place in the community. Mm-hmm. What were those early conversations like? What were they looking for, and mm-hmm. and uh, how did that how did that go down?
1: So HubSpot had this, and it's a whole case study we can have another podcast on, but like this incredible momentum on from a marketing and sales standpoint. And uh, they had just, you know, with the time we were talking, they were probably around $20 million in ARR. And, um, and but, but most people in Boston, including myself, coming out of the marketing stack world, were always had one question, which is like, what does HubSpot actually do? Like we see all the blog posts. We see what does the software actually do? And uh, is there actual software or not? And it was still like this big right. question.
0: It almost seemed like an intellectual technology yes. as opposed to a mm-hmm. digital one.
1: Yes. Yeah. And so, uh, and that, you know, we were on to something, question that because at the time that was the big gap. The product was not there. Uh, I had known uh, most of the board members, David Scott. Larry Bond. Larry Bond, I had met in 2000 when he was running a company called NetGenesis, a public company that then got acquired by SPSS. And um, Gail Goodman, we know, and uh, Andy Payne. They were, these were all, the, all Very friends. Very rock
0: star people. Yeah, yeah rock star people, it,
1: it, yeah. all friends, and I uh, had known them for a long time. We've all known them. And uh, they had David Scott and Andy Payne uh, were kind of the ones that were the product guys on the board and they saw the problem with the product and they were the ones who were proactive and, and trying to make this thing happen. Ultimately, um, you know, I decided to sell the company to, to, uh, HubSpot to, and, uh, and the idea was like, if we can merge these two companies, which now, um, you know, now of course, you know, long time from there, but like maybe we have a chance at like, building a pillar company in Boston, and that was kind of part of the motivation of of, Hubs, of the HubSpot team for sure, something that we wanted to do. And so we decided to do that. And I think, you know, I had mentioned to Mike, the other thing that came into my mind was, you know, I had co-founders at at Performable and uh, who had families and kids, and I thought, like, this would be, like, life-changing for them uh, if we did this. And so ultimately lots of things came into mind, and we ended up... Uh, being bought by HubSpot in 2011, you know
0: you you had become a dad by then. Yes, um, so mm-hmm. it, you know it changes your view. You had been the, the pursuit of knowledge unencumbered yeah. <laughs> by responsibility is <laughs> totally that's a fun time in your life, right? Mm-hmm. But now at that point you'd kind of grown out of that, and yep. I think you, as a leader you sort of mature a little bit and you start to understand the magnitude of the responsibility you have to the people who are following you, yep. you know? Mm-hmm. It sounds like that That was a time where that really connected the dots. Really
1: connected. And it's funny because I think about that a lot throughout all my different adventures and different, you know, back in the day, we call them projects, you know, projects. That yeah, sure. On. Uh, my different projects, because we had such a tough time in those first two years, two to almost three years at Compete, uh, which meant that, you know, in that time, you know, we had laid off, we had multiple rounds of layoffs. We had to lay off people, you know, and it was brutal. I was, you know, whatever, late 20s at that point, mid 20s, late 20s, something like that. And, uh, and I was laying off people who were, you know, who had kids, families, and I was laying them off into a market that was pretty clear that they were not going to have an opportunity for a long time, right? It's hard to, it's hard to wrap, unless you went through, it's hard to wrap your mind around it now. But you knew uh, you had the sense that if you laid someone off in 2001, 2002, like this person might not have a job for a year.
0: Yeah. It's something I, I look for in entrepreneurs is, is whether you've been able to have that conversation with someone. Because oh, yeah. I think once you're, until you're forced to do that, you don't really get it. No. You don't really get the downside of like the hyper growth kind of, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, Mindset and, and I think but after you've been through that, you you do get it. And okay. it, it colors the way I think you look at the world.
1: Especially as a founder, because uh, you're thinking uh, as you're doing it, which is horrible, uh, you're thinking like, wait, this person only came here because I convinced them to come here. Yeah. They came because, you know, especially in those early days, you don't have a product. They didn't come because... You had a cool office or a cool whatever. They came because they believed in something that yeah. you said.
0: There's nothing nothing harder harder in business. No, um, everything else is sort of easy, trivial easy. compared to mm-hmm. the day where you have to have to do that. Mm-hmm. But uh,
1: so that's always been in the back of my mind about like the effects that we have on people, especially as we grow different teams and companies, and like you know we have an impact on everyone's life, right? So
0: you know you had you had had the realization by this point that the seeds of product failure are sown in <laughs> a disconnect. Uh, with between what you're doing and what the customer you know wants done. Yep. Um, one of the one of the policies that you implemented at HubSpot that I always found fascinating was forcing the engineering team out of the uh, you know out of the building and into the into these you know customer meetings, mm-hmm. which now have become you know inbound is like a huge event. But at the time, it, it wasn't quite where it is today. But nope. but you you made the engineering guys go. Oh, Why? Yeah. Uh,
1: because of my experience. It's all, it all goes back my experiences at Compete, where we had all those disconnects. And I was just so happened to have been in those some of those delivery things, but I was not living the customer-driven approach. I was following conventional wisdom of building a product, refining it, getting it ready, and then going and talking to customers right after we had built it. And so I saw all of the mistakes we made uh, throughout Compete doing it that way. And by by 2009, when I started Performable, I had this religion, this idea, right, uh, or hypotheses around let's, let's build from day one around the customer. Right, from right? the
0: customer back as opposed yeah. to from the code up.
1: And so, at, exactly. So at Performer, we started from day one of, like, we're going to build a customer-driven company and team and product approach. I didn't know what that meant. And so we started to test some of these ideas, and we had engineers um, manning support, right, out of necessity at first because we were a small company. We didn't have dedicated support people. We had... Um, we were talking to customers every day. We were customers were you know in early days they would we would get them to Skype with us and share their desktop and look at what they were doing and invite us to their office and we were like living in with the customers and we saw the the um, power. And how fast we were able to build things and react to a customer and the goodwill we developed with that customer by including them as part of the process, uh, that it was mind-blowing. It was a religious experience for me, really. And uh, and so I took that religion that I developed at Performable and brought it into HubSpot, where I had to rebuild the engineering and product and design and and that whole kind of side of the, the house. And said, we're going to implement this from day one. Of course, at first kicking and screaming because engineers, you know, are too busy to talk to customers, they say. And so, but we developed that as a, you know as a must in our culture which meant that if that wasn't for you then this then being here was not for you and we recruited and built a team around that
0: you turned over you know that early team very few of those guys were around uh you know six months later
1: yeah i want to say you know after the first year the original product engineering team you know which was probably like 50 people 40 50 people maybe there was five
0: you know it's something that i i really have tremendous respect for i I, another of my dearly held beliefs is that, you know, starting a company is, is a process of corrupting your vision with the external reality. <laughs> I like that. Um, and, and you're, you're out there sort of, you know, the truth is out there. Mm-hmm. Always. And, and as a, as a, you know, as, as the, the leader of a product team, the leader of an organization, which early days is all about product and sales mm-hmm. and, and nothing else really matters, yeah. right? Exactly. Um, then, then, you know, y- you have to be the person who sort of forcing everyone else to marinate in the truth. Mm-hmm. Uh stay close to the yeah. grounded in the customers requirements and mm-hmm. the business value proposition and that aspect of what what you do and what you've always done, you know, eventually you took out of uh HubSpot uh yeah. and and to create drift. So yep. talk a little bit about what was your original vision mm-hmm. and then and then walk us through the process of how it's been corrupted by the reality of what customers <laughs> wanted and didn't want.
1: Yeah. Oh, uh, that's a great question. I'd say the um, by the time we started drift, so I left HubSpot to start Drift. Uh, I was I had changed as an entrepreneur. One, I had this customer driven kind of epi- uh, epiphany, right? This religious experience, and then re- because of that, I had gone from being an entre- the, your stereotypical entrepreneur, which is like an what should I call is An idea based entrepreneur, which is just obsessed around I have an idea. I have an idea. And you hear this uh, all the time because we're taught this myth uh, where you hear people who say, oh, I want to start a company. Why haven't you started a company? I don't have the right idea. Yeah. And so this myth of this idea and this, like, you know, this shower moment and you have this great – and Zuckerberg has an idea in the shower and then it becomes Facebook and then it's billion dollars. And it's like it's never been the case ever. And so like, my message now when I talk to people is like that, that dream has never existed. Everything is iterative. Life is iterative. Life is, iterative. Life is a progression. And uh, anyone from an artist to a paint, uh, an artist to a scientist goes through a series of exploration and iterations to uh, in the creation process, right? And as a as a writer, as a creator, like you go through iterations. You don't write the first draft and then that's the that's the award winning book. It's a process. But we're taught this myth in company creation, especially around technology companies. And so I had gone from being that kind of person to having all these scars and saying, like, I'm just going to be I'm just going to focus on the customer that I'm trying to go after and the market change that's happening. And when we started Drift, all I knew was I was looking at a market shift that was happening. We would say on the B2C side, right, on our personal lives where there was I was looking at messaging and I was looking at, wow, I've been, you know, ever since the early bolt days, you know, IRC, news groups, AOL, you know, uh, Prodigy, CompuServe, all these things through ICQ, through GChat, through Skype, through etc. Like I had been a user of every messaging platform that I know of, right, including esoteric ones that only ran on Unix command lines, and uh, and I that was always a key part of my daily experience. But the thing that I observed was that because of mobile phones, like that had gone from hundreds of millions of users using that type of technology to using that same technology in a context now that was being used overnight by billions of people. And in most cases, that was their first experience with the Internet. And so I was looking at that and saying, like, holy crap, like now billions of people are defaulting to messaging as their preferred uh, medium. And then I looked at my own life and said, like, wow, if I would contact my daughter who's 11, Mike... Uh, or my team or a friend or a group or someone like it always starts over some form of messaging and if when that kind of paradigm shift happens, like maybe we need to re reevaluate all the marketing and sales software that we 've been building for the last whatever twenty years, and that 's all I knew i didn 't actually know what the product was going to do i didn 't know how we were going to sell it i didn 't know like what features were i didn 't know anything I just knew like this shift has happened it 's undeniable it 's re uh, it's changed all of our lives, and it's happened so quickly that we don't even think it's weird or not normal. And so, like that has that paradigm shift. We need to ride that wave uh, to redefine our whole marketing sales stack.
0: Even like a, as an angel, yeah. you know you you want to find someone who's fallen in love with a problem. Yes, not in love with what they believe to be the solution. Yes, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like it's like don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah, you yeah. Know? <laughs> um, you know, don't love yes. the solution. You yes. know, or don't love the, the the solution. Love the problem. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah. And, and so, you know, Actifio is a Drift customer, and yeah, that, that yeah. idea, like, yeah. in, in a way, it's sort of come full circle, right? Yep. You're you're, in a way, enabling us to create those kinds of relationships mm-hmm. with the people who are, have stopped by our place. Exactly. Uh, I mean, they're there for a reason, and now we're, you're enabling this real-time dialogue, which is very organic and natural, yep. you know, particularly to the sort of under-40 crowd.
1: Totally, and it goes back to, uh, and even the over-40 crowd, that, which is super uh, impressive to see, but like, uh, it goes back to those early days of building Bolt and looking at AOL and looking at the community like we talked about earlier uh, and we're trying to, you know, I and then later on becoming obsessed around this customer-driven kind of religion that I have, it's all manifested itself in Drift. And I think, like, we're trying to empower every company in the world to be able to be customer-driven at its core. And because we think, and this is me from my customer-driven uh, glasses, I think, like, if I look at all the companies that we admire today that are, like, groundbreaking they all have one thing in common, whether it 's Airbnb or Lyft or Uber or uh, you know Amazon or you know etc etc all of these examples is to me that they own the customer relationship in a way that the one the companies that they disrupted never owned the customer because those companies they disrupted were coming from a place of commodity, a place from building something the cheapest or figuring out the best way to build that product. They never own the customer relationship. But you look at Apple, Apple owns the customer relationship, right? The retail store experience, even though it might not make sense to others, although other now they copy them, that was part of owning the customer relationship. And we value today more than anything, not commodities, but experiences and brands and, thing, and, people, and companies that relate to us. And it's all about us as consumers. And those are the cus- companies that we think are winning. And so we want to help the next generation of companies be those type of companies that own that relationship. And because we know and we have experience that if you own the relationship, if you're close to the customer, then you can build the, the products, the solutions, the services that those customers need because you are the closest to them.
0: Yeah, it's... It's music to a brand guy's ears. You know that that, <laughs> yeah. that you know intimacy is the last great frontier of yeah. competitive advantage because yeah. because technology can be replicated so quickly. Oh, it's yeah. so hard to maintain a sustainable competitive advantage yeah. in technology because mm-hmm. somebody else can go build the same shit. You know that Absolutely. you build. Um, But but that intimacy, that relationship, and Mm -hmm. and to the extent that you're putting technology in service to that, as an enabler of Mm -hmm. that, Mm -hmm. that's that's something really powerful.
1: Yeah, and I think, you know, I think about brand all the time, and I think like, wow, we're in the... We're in the new uh, re-evolution of brand and the importance of brand, and especially um, in the technology and software world where, you know, now we're getting to the point of, like, the hard part before was just building the bits, right? The hard part was, like, can you actually make it work? And, like, if I was Salesforce in 1999 building Salesforce, the only thing I needed, uh, all credit to them, was that I was able to do it. From a technology standpoint, I was able to take an on-premise solution and make it a cloud-hosted solution. Lots of technical challenges there, but uh, they were in a market by themselves, right. right? And so, but we're no longer in those days, right? We're in any given category that you're in. You have, you know, many dozens, if not hundreds of competitors, or whether it's solution or software or a combination of solution and software or service. Who knows what it is, but there's com- there's competitive energy out there. And in when you're in that day... Then you need to think about things like the great brand builders, you know, whether they were were in the CPG world or, or anywhere else in the consumer world, have done and built experiences and brands. Steve Jobs was probably a genius
0: and almost certainly the best product guy of the 20th century. Was the causal relationship between those two things direct or was it filtered through the lens of an adopted kid looking for validation in the things he created? looking for love and acceptance in our collective response to the products he sometimes seemed to value even more than the people in his life. Building a great product or a great company is a hard thing, but people that do it are often very smart, very talented, often have conviction and character and all the qualities the mythology of entrepreneurship conveys upon them. But I think the reason they fascinate us is that at the end of the day, the best of them just want what we all want, which is a little love and acceptance from a world we want to be a part of. How Hard Can It Be is sponsored by G20 Ventures, early traction capital for East Coast enterprise tech startups, backed by the power and expertise of 20 of the Northeast's most accomplished entrepreneurs. G20 Ventures, people first. How Hard Can It Be is also sponsored by Actifio, the world's leading enterprise data as a service platform. Deliver your data just like your applications and infrastructure as a service available instantly anywhere. For hybrid cloud, faster DevOps, and better business resiliency, Actifio is radically simple. Thanks, and we'll see you next week.